Whether you're on a forum, playing games online, or even just setting up your Instagram, you've probably got an online handle. Some kind of gamertag or username. Me? I tend to go by the name Doc Hob. It's shortened from its roots a bit, but it's stuck with me over years, and it's my YouTube handle, it was my gaming username of choice. Personally, I think it was a fun way to give some character to who you are when you're online. It's been with me for about 20 years now. Especially back when the number of places you could have a handle was a lot more limited. It just seemed a bit cooler back then. After all, in all the movies, the hackers had really cool names. Zero Cool, Neo, Trinity, Blaze. Today I'd like to talk to you about Albert Gonzalez, who went by the alias Soup Nazi. A far cry from his Seinfeld counterpart, Gonzalez would take the name to criminal heights throughout the years, accomplishing some of the largest financial hacks we've ever seen. My name is John Cordes, and this week on What the Shell, we're going back to the early 2000s to follow the trail of the elusive Soup Nazi and find out what secret recipes got him millions of dollars from illegal activity. Before we get into what he did, let's set the backdrop of who Albert Gonzalez, the soup Nazi, was. His father, Alberto, came to the United States from Cuba in a raft that was made by hand in 1970. He was seeking a better life and would eventually land as a landscaper outside of Miami, marrying and having a daughter. Then, in late 1980, they'd get the news that they were having another baby, and that would turn out to be Albert, who would be born the following June. His childhood would start out fairly mundane. He'd enjoy his time as a kid and grew up to find his own interests. It would become clear, though, that he had a fascination with computers. At just eight years old, he'd get access to his first computer, and in an interesting turn, it would get a computer virus. If you're looking at this whole story from... Uh, kind of butterfly effect point of view, this computer virus may have been responsible for everything coming up in this episode. Back to the story. I don't know about you, but if my computer got a virus, I'd probably get a little frustrated, run my antivirus tool, and do some work to try and make sure that I took care of cleaning things up. Little Albert, however, didn't have access to the tools at the time. And he was just a kid. I don't know if I'd been able to figure it out at 8 years old either. Instead, he kind of got a bit spiteful, and decided to dedicate his time to learning everything he could about his computer, to make sure that it didn't happen again. He wasn't going to be played a fool. And it wasn't a bad strategy. But you need to remember that at this point, computers looked and behaved very differently than they do right now. He wouldn't be able to just Google something to figure out how it worked. It took quite a bit of legwork to really get into the nitty gritty about how that device did everything he loved about it. He'd continue this process of self-teaching himself the ins and outs of computer architecture for years. And that likely included learning how to code, what tools were available, and yeah, through those concepts, he'd probably learn how that virus first took him out, and how it worked. It's a pretty natural progression, but one that's all the more impressive because of his age and the dedication that must have gone into it. What's more, according to his high school transcripts years later, he never even took a computer class fair and he didn't go to college either. So literally everything he knew about this subject was self-initiated. Even though he didn't really take the traditional route, he did manage to cue himself up for a decent work life, even landing himself a job at a New Jersey firm right after he graduated. Things would continue to remain fairly low profile for Albert until around 2003, 
So let's jump forward to 2003, when Gonzalez would be caught doing something relatively minor in the kind of cybercrime we talk about, but would have major ripples in the years to come. It was July, and the soup Nazi went to an ATM late one night to start taking out cash. More specifically, it was just before midnight. When he got to the ATM, he wouldn't take out his own bank debit card, though. He took out what looked like a blank card with a stripe on it. He used the card, entered the pin, and withdrew as much cash as they would allow. Then he took out another, and did the same thing. He'd do it a couple more times, wash, rinse, repeat, until he ran out of cards and had taken out as much cash as he could. That's where the close to midnight comes into play here. At midnight, the cash limit for the day reset because it was tied to the date and not a specific 24-hour period. Do you see where this is going? Gonzalez was now able to double dip. Once that midnight line was crossed, he could just start over, save himself a lot of time the next day, plus maybe get double the money he had provided the account was filled enough. Those cards weren't his though. Supnazi had a pack of stolen cards that he was milking one by one until he was out. The double dipping would help here because it was entirely possible that if he waited, the card numbers might get cancelled by the provider, so he had to act quickly or lose the opportunity. I want to let you know it's incredibly easy at this point in time to clone a credit card if you have the right data and tools. An easy way to do that might have been to simply scan the card using something like a fake transaction reader. Those can even be disguised to look like something real. For example, one can be put over a gas pump or an ATM card insertion spot. They'll look just like the real thing, and unless you accidentally pop it off, you'll probably be none the wiser. If you'd like to see one, I'll have some pictures on my website and on Instagram showing you how real they can look. It was such a problem, in fact, that I remember in the mid to late 2000s when Daily News would have special alerts to be on the lookout in your area because some of these had been found. These days, with chip technology in our cards, it's become a bit harder for this kind of attack, but before that really took, it was an incredibly easy thing to do. The other thing you might be able to do if you knew where to look, was to buy the card information yourself online, and program the cards yourself. That is what Gonzalez did. But where'd he get that info? Well, he got it from a site called shadowcrew.com. Gonzalez had started to make his way down toward the path of a more black hat in the cyberway, and spent a lot of time as a moderator on that site. It was a bit of a haven for hackers and fraudsters with stolen data or goods that they wanted to offload for a bit of a payday. Not only that, it specialized in the sale of drugs. It was a precursor to sites like Silk Road and Alpha Bay. In 2003, pre-MySpace and social media as we know it, 4,000 members was a massive community. It was natural that they would need talented and savvy people to help moderate it. So Gonzalez, who at the time went by the handle Kumba Johnny, assisted in that effort. Normally, the site would have been hosted in Hong Kong. That kind of helped in a way similar to how we've talked about how Russian sites are being operated. It was a lot harder for the US to get it taken down if it was hosted offshore. But he was an admin for it, and shortly before that night in 2003, he had a copy of a server set up in his possession in New Jersey. So let's flash back to Albert. That night in 2003, a detective noticed that Gonzalez was up to some shady stuff and decided to bring him in. Gonzalez didn't realize it yet, but he'd have quite a bit of leverage here. You might be thinking to yourself what kind of leverage would he have, so at this point we need to take a step back and move over to the Secret Service. Yeah, you heard that right. The Secret Service, like the group that guards the president, 
the Secret Service has more than just that mission. In fact, they're a critical group for investigating cyber fraud. And in 2003, they launched what was called Operation Firewall. Until then, there hadn't really been large-scale operations against organized cybercrime like this, so it was still fairly new ground. They just knew that there was a problem with fraud, namely stolen payment data, and it needed to be addressed. The last few episodes, I've put you in the position of a hacker, but now imagine this. You're a secret service agent brought in on this local guy who's got some digital credit card fraud going on in the midst of Operation Firewall. What do you do? I think you cut him in on a deal to maybe get the lead up to some bigger fish. After all, Gonzalez was looking down the barrel of a 20-year prison sentence at just 22 years old. He'd lose some of the best years of his life if he didn't cooperate, so the decision was a bit of an easy one to make. His cooperation with the Secret Service would lead to the takedown of the Shadow Crew site. From their user side, what they probably saw was a completely functional site one day, and then the next day it would look entirely different. They'd browse to it and find this message. For those who wish to play in the shadows, activities by Shadow Crew members are being investigated by the United States Secret Service. Several arrests have recently been made, with many more to follow. Proxies, VPNs, IP spoofing, encryption. You are no longer anonymous. Shadow Crew members are facing the following charges. And then it listed conspiracy, access device fraud, fraud with identity documents, identity theft, and more. If you're a member who is confused and or concerned by your actions, please read the following. Recent news reports should inform you that the Secret Service is investigating your criminal activity. Contact your local United States Secret Service field office before we contact you. And on the website is a kind of poor image of a guy behind jail bars. Looking back at this with hindsight, it's actually pretty funny to me. The site looks like it was designed by a middle schooler learning HTML for the first time, and they put on this big intimidation tactic to try to get users to come to them. Admittedly, it would work on some levels, but just looking at the site with this hindsight, it's bizarre. It's funny, it's weird. So for the next few years, the feds would help Gonzalez kick his drug habits, and even front him on a place to stay for a part of it. All the while, Gonzalez would feed them information that was getting them big busts. Some of the agents who worked with him even noted that while he was relatively introverted at first, once he opened up, there was a certain charm to him that many found endearing. According to records, he'd end up getting around $75,000 a year to do this kind of work. And that would last over the next few years. From the outside in, it genuinely looked like he was turning his life around. But while the Secret Service was moving on from Operation Firewall, thanks in large part to Gonzalez, the soup Nazi himself decided to launch his own operation. He and the group he'd worked with would call it Operation Get Rich or Die Trying. See, much of a social engineer, Albert was playing the feds. While he was helping them, he was still up to his old games, but this time he had cranked it up to 11. It all started in 2005 with something called war driving. War driving is a pretty simple concept. You get some beefy wireless antennas and put them in your car, and then you drive around documenting what you find. You might find open wireless networks or networks that are running on vulnerable hardware. You might also find something in the way of weak encryption. Really, you're just building a massive catalog of the information you get. Think of it almost like you're walking down the beach, dragging a shovel. 
You're catching a lot of sand in the shovel, but there might also be valuables, like shells or something interesting. All you need to do is sift through it, and you might have found yourself something good. By default, we usually broadcast our wireless networks, so in this case, you can consider them the sand. But fortunately, we're also usually well protected, so that'll get sifted right out. It's those weak ones that we talked about that are the loot here. And one such piece of loot was pretty interesting. It was an unsecure network outside a TJX outlet. That was just the first stop on his journey. With that foothold in place, being able to get into that unsecure network, he pivoted all the way up to the corporate network located in western Massachusetts. He'd make some good progress, but he knew he was walking on thin ice here. He needed to be quiet or he'd risk losing everything he'd been working toward. Luckily enough for him, Gonzalez knew a guy, and went to his longtime friend and occasional accomplice, Stephen Watt, who was a coder. He asked Watt for a tool that he could plant on the network to sniff around for anything from transaction data to passwords. And Watts provided. He called the tool Blabla. Using Blabla, Gonzalez would be able to capture credit card and debit card numbers as they were being processed, and was able to either use it or sell it as he saw fit. He planted the sniffer, and then all he had to do was sit back and let it do its thing. TJX wasn't the only place he'd be able to get his hands into, though. Blabla would eventually be found not only there, but in places like Dave and Buster's the following year. All in all, Soup Nazi would make out with the information of over 130 million credit and debit cards. There was still the problem of the feds. He couldn't just sell that data. He was under some level of scrutiny because he was still feeding information to the Secret Service. So, he created a routine that worked in his favor. Soup Nazi went and leased servers offshore located in the Ukraine and Latvia. The stolen credit card data would be routed there first, and once there, a card seller by the name of Maxim Yastremsky would in turn get them out to a larger underground group of people in that business. They would program the card data, get what money they could out of it, and then they'd be laundered back to Gonzalez with his share. On Maxim's side of it, it's estimated that he earned over $10 million in that operation alone. So it stands to reason that Gonzalez made a pretty penny for himself. Gonzalez's game here was to stay as low to the ground as possible, which is why he had this operation set up far away from home. He couldn't remain entirely out of a picture, so he adopted a new alias. No longer a soup Nazi, he'd now go by Segvec. That's S-E-G-V-E-C. As Segvec, these criminal activities he was putting under his belt were orders of magnitude greater than anything he'd done before. He was using his earnings pretty loosey-goosey too. Some of the items he'd pay for outright included a condo, a BMW, some pistols, a diamond ring, multiple Rolex watches, and more. How some of that went unquestioned is beyond me, but that's for another time. He must have been doing a pretty good job covering his trail not to alert the authorities that he'd suddenly start coming into some big money. But while Albert had gone relatively unnoticed, the same couldn't be said for his alter ego Segvec. Then again, I guess that's the point. Segvec was on the government's radar, but they had no idea who he was, or that he was their own informant. As it seems the ones that get caught always do, Segvec would maybe get a little too careless. At that point, the feds were clued into Segvec and some of the hacks that he was alleged to be a part of, including that Dave and Buster's hack. And 
internet chatter would give them a clue that they were having trouble maintaining their persistence in the Dave and Buster's network. Anytime the systems would shut down, it would need to have malware reintroduced to keep working. That need to go back to the Dave and Buster's and put the malware back in place eventually started the chain that led to the ultimate conclusion. Segvec was Gonzalez. And as the twine was unwound, that group that was operating under the name of Project Mayhem now was identified individual by individual. Remember Stephen Watts? He was charged with writing that sniffing malware that helped facilitate all this. He'd end up getting two years in jail and needing to pay an amount of $171.5 million to TJX for his role. I wonder how you even start to pay that. He said himself that he didn't make nearly as much money as everyone else. I want to pause here for a second, though. If a name Stephen Watts sounds familiar to you, it's because he was briefly mentioned in a past episode. You might remember his internet alias, Jim Jones, or JJ. If you don't, or you haven't listened to my episode on him yet, this is the same JJ alias that led to federal agents believing that Jonathan James was connected to these hacks, ultimately resulting in him taking his own life from being how he saw it, scapegoated. For Gonzalez, he wouldn't get off as lucky as Watt did, though. On August 28, 2009, the attorney acting on behalf of Albert filed papers with the U.S. District Court for Massachusetts that showed he would plead guilty to all 19 charges that were brought against him, and in March of 2010, he would be sentenced to 20 years in prison. The list of hacked companies he was charged with included TJX, Office Max, Dave and Buster's, Barnes and Nobles, and more. To add insult to injury, the very next day he received another 20-year sentence for hacking the Heartland payment systems at the same time all of this was happening. Luckily for him, as a part of a plea deal, he was able to serve those two sentences concurrently, meaning he'd only served 20 years total, and that's what he's been up to ever since. He's down in Kentucky at the Federal Medical Center, a prison in the area. A few years after his sentencing, he tried to take back the guilty plea because he hadn't been informed that he could use a public authority defense, since he'd been working with a secret service at the time. But that doesn't seem to have really gone anywhere. After all, it's a little hard not to think of him as guilty when, before he was sentenced, he was quoted as saying to the court that he deeply regretted his crimes and is remorseful for having taken advantage of the personal relationships he'd forged. Quote, particularly one he'd had with a certain government agency that gave him a second chance in life. He blamed nobody but himself. Kind of sounds like some level of admission of guilt there to me. As of now, he's got just three and a half years or so left in his time in jail, and he'll be in his mid-40s when he's released. He hasn't had much access to computers, only being able to use them when his lawyer comes to visit and review case evidence. But I'm curious as to what he'll end up doing once he's out. He's got plenty of time to make a positive impact in the field, or maybe to turn back to his old ways. Either way, it should be interesting to see. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for taking the time this week to listen to me explain what the shell the soup Nazi did, and why he's still in jail for it. But before we go, I wanted to put out a call to you, the listener. Do you have any interesting stories from the hacking community? Are you an expert in the field? I'm interested in expanding the interview format I did a few weeks ago with Tank, and I'm looking for people who might be interested in sharing. If that sounds like you, you can head to my website, whattheshellpod.com. 
There you'll find a contact page where you can send me a message. Let me know what you've got, and if I think we can use it in an upcoming episode, I'll gladly get it together, and maybe you'll get your own bonus episode. Even if that's not the case, I'd like to encourage you to visit the site anyways. You'll find links to our various social media pages, including our Discord channel, where you can come and discuss episodes with me and others in the community. You'll also find the latest episode's script and reference images I've been talking about. But if that's not your cup of tea, you can always follow me on Twitter or Instagram at shell underscore pod. I'll still be posting some of the same picture content there so you can go take a look. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. I'll see you in two weeks with the first episode of 2022.